Once again, good morning. It's good to be with all of you um, as we continue to uh, work our way through the gospel of Mark together. Before we dive into this, I wanted to, um, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, I wanted just to reiterate that um, as a staff, we've been thinking and praying a lot about just kind of where the Lord is leading in this season. And I, um, I, I, we have a sense of just anticipation and excitement about the work that God is doing in our church, the work he's doing in our community and really kind of a felt need to, um, to get ready for, to engage with our neighbors, to um, include them, invite them, and whether it's people that, I've always said that our greatest um, opportunity to meet new people is, is gonna be you all, right? It's gonna be your coworkers and your neighbors and your friends and people that you interact with. Those, those primarily are the people that walk through our doors for the very first time that we have the opportunity to meet. Sometimes it's just people in the community that just see us here and say, hey, I wanna come interact with it. But our desire in that is that they really build meaningful, deep relationships with, with you all. And that the reason that they're here is because one of you meets them and connects with them and loves them and cares about them, gets to know their name and invites them back. And so um, I want to continue to put that vision in front of us because I believe that you're really critical to the work that God has sent us here at this campus to do. Um, in fact, I, I would say we can't really do it effectively without you. And, and so I encourage you to continue to think that way. Um, I know we've lived in this season and, and continue to live in this season where we got to be cautious and I understand all of that. And yet in the midst of that, um, introduce yourself to somebody, uh, meet somebody new, make sure that, that they feel like there's someone here who knows them and loves them and, and is going to miss them if they're not back next week. It's the work in front of us. And I'm so grateful that you share in it with us. I, um, I was thinking about this passage this week, and it, I don't know if you've ever been kind of, if this phrase has been levied at you, but if you guys, you've all heard the phrase like guilty by association, right? Like it's the idea that your proximity to somebody who is guilty of something is implied to you as well. So even like when I was a kid and my little plot in Eaton, Ohio that my family grew up on, we had this yellow farmhouse and just behind the house, the backyard was like the perfect neighborhood gathering area for football games and wiffle ball games and the spot that was like home plate and the end zone and all of that like just behind it was this big picture window and um it it got broken more than once right foul ball overthrown pass you know all that sort of thing it's like as soon as the parents would run out to make sure everybody's okay they heard the crash they'd come out we're all just pointing at the guilty party like whoever threw the pass, whoever hit the foul ball, like you're just like, that was them. But that's not how it worked, right? The responsibility of it sort of fell on all of us. There was some rules. I think, honestly, at the end of the day, my parents just kind of budgeted for replacing that window. It was like a price they were willing to pay. But that was like the idea of, of guilt by association. I didn't do it, but I was close to the person who did. And therefore... I held some responsibility. We see this all the time. This, this, this gets played out in our politics every day. 
if, if I can sort of find somebody who is my political enemy and I can point to some nefarious relationship that I think they have, or at least I can imply that they have, there's some sketchy person, somebody who's got this relatively like reviled in our society. If I can draw some connection there between this person and, and that person, I can say that they're guilty by association. I can use that association then to discredit them. And it may or may not be true. It doesn't really matter in that point. It's just proximity. They're guilty by association. Of course, this was a tool that, that Jesus had used against him any number of times. You can think about situations where Jesus stayed at the house of a tax collector named Zacchaeus. Or the time that, that a woman was brought in front of basically the society because she had been caught in the act of adultery and Jesus defended her. He, he stood with her. People, his, his enemies, his, those who wanted to silence Jesus used these associations all the time in this attempt to discredit them. It tends to make the case that Jesus was disqualified, that he wasn't worth listening to, that he was guilty by association. We're, as I mentioned earlier, we're in our series in the Gospel of Mark entitled Following the King. We began this all the way back last fall, and, and we're going to continue in it all the way up through Easter. And it's interesting as we work our way through the Gospel of Mark to note that the, the first two-thirds uh, to three-quarters of the Gospel of Mark really covers about three years of Jesus' life and ministry. Right? G Mark's Gospel just starts when Jesus begins his, his ministry work. But the last third, or, three, or about a quarter, really close to a third of it, covers one week of Jesus's life. And that's where we find ourselves now. Mark's placing this intentional focus, this point of emphasis on this week of Jesus's life. And he's making the point that in order to understand who Jesus is and what he asks of us, what he has accomplished on our behalf, we need to understand what unfolds in this week of his life. We need to understand what led to his crucifixion, his execution. We need to understand the victory of, of the resurrection. There is in this, in Mark's gospel, there is this crescendo that we're moving towards. And the volume is now starting to be turned up. There's a couple of, of events that have taken place that, that have started to increase the volume. There was a blind man named Bartimaeus. Pastor Jeff talked about him last week and as Jesus is passing through Jericho, he's sitting on the side of the road and he's shouting out at the top of his lungs and any sort of just hope that maybe Jesus will stop, that maybe this is an opportunity for him. And he cries out, Jesus, son of David. To our sort of modern ears, that passes by us without much significance, but if you were a first century Hebrew, if you were a Jewish man or woman hearing that for the very first time, that rang in your ears. And Jesus doesn't refute it. He doesn't silence him. Jesus, for the first time, allows this messianic, kingly title to be applied to him. He doesn't turn away from it or reject it. If that wasn't enough, what follows is in chapter 11 is the people, there's this frenzy that starts. 
and, and Jesus is paraded into Jerusalem. The crowds gather around the side of the road. We know this is the triumphal entry. People are shouting at the top of their lungs, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. As Jesus enters into the city, right? There's this palpable sense. This is the moment. Thing, the, the very thing that you've been waiting for from generation to generation to generation is now happening right in front of your eyes. Jesus, once he enters into the city of Jerusalem, goes into the temple, and when he's in the temple, he finds all sorts of abuse and injustice, and he starts turning over tables and kicking people out, right? You can, you can as you read this gospel, you just hear the volume being like, okay, stuff's getting real here, right? Like it is moving towards this crescendo. The volume is increasing, and so if you are if you view Jesus as a fraud, if you view him as a political enemy, then this, at this point, you're, you're, in your heart, I mean, you, he has to be stopped. He has to be silenced, no matter what the cost is. This is where we pick things up in, in Mark chapter 12. Jesus has now just finished telling a parable. And the parable is... is clearly directed at the Pharisees, at the religious leaders in Israel who have neglected their God-given responsibility. And here's where we're going to pick things up in verse 12. Before we do that, let's, let's pray together and we'll open up Mark's gospel. Father, we do just thank you again for this um, opportunity to really consider and look at what does it mean for us in the 21st century to follow you as our king. What does it mean that in our culture, our society, in our homes, in our own hearts? And Jesus, would you continue to open our eyes and give us a clear picture of that? Help us to know you more, to understand you more, and to follow you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So Jesus has just told this story. It's clearly a uh, critique um, on the Pharisees, and, and this is where we pick it up in verse 12. It says they were seeking to arrest him, speaking of the Pharisees towards Jesus, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them, which they perceived correctly. And so they left him and he went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true. And do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? Then they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. Right, so how, how if, if you have this overwhelming sense that we've got to silence Jesus, how do you do that? How do you discredit Jesus? In this effort, they, they, they're approach their ideas, if we get him to pick a side, if we can get him to take a stand, then, then whatever side he takes, whatever stand he takes, the other side of that will hate him 
And they'll, they'll ultimately attend to either dismiss him or, or far worse. At the very outset of, of this portion of scripture, we see that there is an agenda, right? There's a very clear agenda that is unfolding here in this interaction. In fact, in verse 13, it says it rather overtly. They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So if you've ever had that sense that somebody's coming to you and, and they're coming to you with a very clear, like, purpose, agenda, right? That, that they have an ulterior motivation. I remember when my oldest daughter was making her case to get earrings. And I was sort of the resisting force in the house because um, I just wasn't ready to have a daughter that was old enough to have earrings. And... Um, and so she had made this compelling case and I was outside that day working. It was, a, it was a really hot day. I was on the side of my house and, um, and all of a sudden I noticed Emma kept bringing me like a cup of cold water with ice and it was like a few snacks and like, dad, do you, is there anything I can do for you? Is there, do you need some help with anything? And it's like, I could, you could tell in this sweet little child's mind that, that there was an agenda. There was something unfolded, a motivation behind what was happening that informed her actions, right? Here in the outset of this, by the way, it worked like a charm. She had like earrings like two days later. Um, I was powerless to, to resist it. The agenda here is obvious. If, if they can get Jesus to align himself on this hot button issue, then they can either get the, the people to despise him or they can get Rome to remove him, but either way, in their hearts and minds, problem solved. I think, by the way, that there is something in this that informs oftentimes our own approaches to Jesus. Sometimes the, the way that we come to him, particularly when we come to him with our agenda, is that if I can either, if I can either get him on my side or, or kind of dismiss who he is and what he says. It's, it's, it's not new and it hasn't gone away. I was talking about this passage with my, uh, my middle daughter, my high school daughter earlier this week. And she said to me, she's like, dad, these, these have to be a different set of Pharisees, right? Because this is not the first time they've tried this with Jesus. It's not the first time they've tried to like get him in a brain teaser kind of situation. And it hasn't gone well for them. In each of the previous times, and yet here they're trying the same attempt. If, if we can just put this kind of impossible situation in front of him, force him to make an answer, then we can discredit him among the people. Notice a couple things here. First, the Pharisees and the Herodians are, are partnered up here. And despite their polar opposite political views on how they as Israel approach and understand Roman occupation, how they believed the people should respond to that. The Pharisees very much resisted it and were waiting for the day that they would have their freedom again. The Herodians were like, hey, it is what it is. The best move here is to line, align under Herod's rule and reign. They, they could not have been farther apart on the spectrum, political spectrum, and yet they shared a common enemy. They both felt this need and this conviction that Jesus had to be stopped. And so they align together. In fact, this isn't the first time this has happened. If you remember back early in Mark's gospel in chapter three, 
There was a similar sort of setup that was happening. Jesus was in the synagogue with his disciples and the Pharisees intentionally placed a man there who had a deformity in his hand. And they wanted to see that if Jesus had the audacity to heal him on the Sabbath, because they believed that would be a, vi a violation of the Sabbath rules. And, and Jesus co confronts their hypocrisy. He heals him on the Sabbath. And again, the, what the Pharisees had viewed as this trap that, that Jesus was being led into didn't work the way they wanted it to. And if you remember all the way back in verse six of chapter three, at that point in time, it says, the Pharisees went out and they immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. Right, it's the classic, like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They, they both viewed Jesus as a clear threat to their own power and position. And so even if it means partnering up with somebody who is the exact opposite of you, a political enemy, it's worth it. Second, I, I, I've said a couple times here that, that their desire, their hope is to discredit Jesus. But that really is, is understating it. That's, that's putting it softly. They, they, they want to destroy him. In fact, that verb that is translated to trap him, to trap him in his talk, it says, that's, that's a, it's a hunting term. It literally means that to, to pursue him with this violence, like to, to, to track him down, a violent pursuit. They have in mind, what they have in mind isn't merely uh, disgracing Jesus, but rather they, they want to see him dead and destroyed. And then thirdly, notice their approach here. Notice how they come to Jesus. It's full of flattery and deceit. Teacher, it says, this is verse 14. We know that you are true and you don't care about anyone's opinion for your eyes are not swayed by appearance, but truly teach the way of God, right? It's, it's oozing with manipulation and deception. If they believed any of this about Jesus, it, it radically changes their approach and their purpose in coming to him. But the reality is, is that they don't believe it. Their actions and their agendas are set. They're a result of what they believe about Jesus. The crowds that had gathered outside of Jericho who lined the streets and who were shouting Hosanna, they believed that Jesus is the Messiah, was the Messiah. They, they had a, I think, misguided understanding of what the Messiah was coming to do, but they believed he was the Messiah and it informed their actions and their agenda. The Pharisees and the Herodians, they think he's a, a fraud and a threat. And he's certainly not the king, not their king. So the agenda was set. He has to be destroyed. And so because of their, their agenda, then they set the trap. They set the trap. That's the second thing we see in this passage here. Back in verse 14, they came and they said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and you don't care about, <coughs> about anyone's opinion for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Right, and in other words, Jesus, where does your allegiance lie? Who's, whose side of the matter are you on? 
If you if you want to get a a heated conversation going, bring up taxes, right? First century, twenty first century, everywhere in between. Like it, it, it's it's a hot button issue, and we are no strangers to tribalism. Like if only there was something going on in our world that I could compare this to, right? Right? Like. Like we, we have this, we have this human instinct to, to kind of circle up, get in our clusters. Who are the people that agree with me? Who are the people that disagree with me? And then if I can kind of pigeon you, pigeonhole you on a, on a topic, on our position, then I can, I know everything about you. I know everything that needs to be known and, and I've got you labeled and you're in your spot and, and it's not that different to what's going on here. Jesus's world was no stranger to tribalism. And so in, in our tribalism, right, our positions become our identity and our identity becomes our life. You're not then just merely having a conversation, a discussion or a debate with somebody that you might disagree with, but rather you need to distance yourself from them. Somebody to be feared, potentially even hated. So the agenda is obvious. The strategy is as relevant then as it is now. Identify what side of the topic that Jesus is on and either use him to to bolster your case or to mobilize against him because he's been identified with the enemy. Either way, for those seeking to destroy Jesus, again, in their hearts and minds, it's mission accomplished. Taxes in the first century In first century Israel, we're we're far more than just what's a fair rate to pay. It's a constant reminder that you lived as an occupied people. It's a constant reminder of a Rome's authority that they wielded over you and it was oppressive and it was abusive. And the people had no recourse, no action to take. There was no vote to ask them what, what percent they thought they should be willing to pay. So to answer the question for Jesus, this is to, by definition, take a side. Jesus is either going to align himself with the people and and they're going to cheer him or he's going to align himself with Rome and, and they're going to seek to destroy him. But one way or another, if he aligns himself with the people, Rome comes in and says, you got to go. And if he aligns himself with Rome, the people say, you're not who we thought you were and we want nothing to do with you. And there would be a violent reaction against him. So Jesus, where does your allegiance lie? Answer this question. Who do you side with in this? Look how Jesus responds. This is the the third thing that we see in this text. It's the resolution here that Jesus gives. I think all of us, when when we find ourselves in a situation where we we feel trapped, where we feel like we're caught, right? What do you inevitably do in, in that circumstance? You look for a way out, right? You look for some sort of path. And again, I, I, not to get all, like I keep using political illustrations, but this is, this, what's going on here is very political. But we see this all the time in our, our modern sort of experience of politics where our politicians will intentionally avoid clear answers on questions asked to them because that's picking a side. Right, so that if you're going to be in politics, oftentimes you've got to become the master of the non-answer. You, like something's asked of you, what's your position on this? 
and you like use that word once in the answer and then you talk about something completely different, right? Something that you know, I'm for flowers and beauty. And like, you're like, I'm like, okay, like I can get behind that. Like, because you know that if you answer it in such a way that, that lands you in a spot that everybody else who doesn't land in that spot has clear evidence as to why they can't be on your team. And so you avoid taking a position on anything, but Jesus doesn't do this here. It might feel like that to us at first read, but that's not at all what he does. In verse 15, he says, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So as we, as we continue to explore this gospel together, I think one of the reoccurring observations that, that we need to pay attention to is the manner in which Jesus seems to take circumstances and, and situations and issues that feel to us so frequently from our perspective to be, to be binary, to be it's either this option or it's this option. But Jesus, when he does this, he so frequently speaks into and he, and he offers a third way. He offers what, what we've been talking about as the way of Jesus. In response to this trap question, Jesus offers a bit of an object lesson. He, he says, bring me a denarius and, and, and let me look at it. Jesus holds up the most common coin in the Roman Empire at the time, the denarius, the equivalent of, of one day's pay for a blue-collar day laborer's uh, work. You would get one denarius. I'm printed on this denarius. I brought a, a picture of this. I've shown this before, but would be printed into it, embedded into it was the image of Tiberius Caesar. And there was an inscription around this around his image that, that said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. In fact, on the backside there, it reads high priest. See, Caesar viewed himself as the son of God. He, his claim to authority and rule and governance over the people, his claim to, that it was right of him to conquer and to take lands and to enslave people, all of it in his mind, was that he was the very son of God, this divine authority, and had the right to do whatever it was he wanted to do. So Jesus holds up this coin with Caesar's image on it, the inscription that says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, and he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Right? Give, give to Caesar, Caesar that which bears his image but render to God the things that are God's. Or in other words, give to God the things that bear his image. And where has God inscribed his image? On us. On you. On Caesar. On everyone who heard Jesus answer the Pharisees' question on that day. Everyone who reads this text today. If we get, if we're thinking about this from a first century uh, Hebrew mindset worldview, like you grew up knowing the creation narrative, you grew up knowing Genesis one and two, 
You understood the significance of God's design in humanity. Look at this again. This is back in Genesis 1. Verse 26 and 27, it said, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. This, this text is the theology that informs our view of, of humankind, of the worth and value, purpose that's placed in each and every one of us because we, we bear the divine image of God. It informs our theology around sexism and racism and, and, and um, poverty. It's, there's so many things that these two verses, they inform how we think about and how we respond as the church and how we look at people around us. It informs our idea of grace and atonement. Like so much is born out of what happens right here in creation. And see, the resolution that Jesus offers, it's not to align himself with one side of the debate or the other, but rather to realign us to the way of Jesus. That's his answer. It is, by the way, the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's what he's, the Holy Spirit is actively doing now in the church, is to align us with the image of God that has been inscribed, embedded in us. The Apostle Paul talks about this as, as taking off the former self, the former way of life, and putting on the new way of life. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 4, he describes it this way. In Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 22, he says, You were taught with regard to the former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. You're created to actively bear the image that has been embedded in you. And it's the work, it's, it's spiritual formation. It's us becoming men and women who more accurately reflect the character and nature of God, who bear his image. This is Jesus' answer. He says, give Give to Caesar what's due Caesar. I, I own Caesar, right? I have put my image on him. I've put my image on you as it relates to how we interact with and, and um, respond to human authority. Like scripture is, is clear in all of this. We respectfully obey and we thoughtfully and prayerfully participate as long as it doesn't violate God's commands in our lives, Right? But as it relates to God, Jesus also says, give him what he is due. And what does he do? Everything. He's due your worship. He's due your time and your energy. Your home. He's, he's due the way that you view your money and your work. He's ultimately due your entire life. Jesus presents a third way. And it wasn't about aligning his allegiance to us, but rather aligning ours to him. 
Would you pray with me? Father, we do just thank you for this opportunity to continue to look at how Jesus confronts our our human understanding, our human systems, and how he presents a a third way. And so Jesus, in in humility, Lord, we want to We want to continue to offer to you what is due you, which is the totality of who we are. Our lives, our, our time, our energy, our obedience. Jesus, we want to, we want to give it all to you. So Lord, I pray that in doing so that we would live as, as faithful and active, um, participants in our, our society and our culture, Lord, but our ultimate worship, Lord, direct that to you. It's do you because we bear your image. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.